Welcome, and thanks for joining us for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we will be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and in their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed to provide community support to adult and child survivors, rather than relying on a putative response. We prioritize guidance that advances equity and removes barriers to the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by institutions and systems and towards supports that center survivors and their families and communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and our practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these shorts to engage in discussions in your organizations. I'm your host, Surabi Kuke. Let's dive in. Okay, welcome back to The Pivot. Today we are speaking with beloved colleague Ty Simpson from the Idaho Coalition. And I wanted to start by inviting Ty to introduce themselves and share a little bit about what they do at the Idaho Coalition and before we get started. Hey, thanks. And thank you for having me. Um, As you mentioned, my name is Ty Simpson. I use she and her pronouns. I am currently a co-director at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. And I've been with the organization for three years. Kind of some things I think I'd uplift is uh, my work primarily focuses on kind of future casting and like wellness and thriving for specifically indigenous tribes in Idaho. I am a citizen of the Nimipu Nation or the Nez Perce tribe in Idaho. Um, I also identify as black. Um, I am... um, a cishet woman, you know, navigating one of the most conservative states in the union uh, that is predominantly white. Uh, So we have several adventures here in our work to end violence at the coalition. But one of the things too with the Idaho Coalition that I love a lot is that we um, operate from what's called a theory of change rather than a strategic plan, which allows us to, you know, focus our work at the intersections of systemic oppression and gender violence. So it allows us to be very, very creative and innovative in the way that we do this work. Thank you. Thank you for that framing. You know, one of the things that I've really appreciated getting to know about the Idaho Coalition is, one, the radical and transformative, well, transformations that you all are undertaking to really examine the sort of artifacts of uh, white supremacy practices and how to uproot them and how to reinvent the organization in a way that reflects your values. One of the things we do, we have been doing at Futures um, through Promising Futures, uh, the program has been to look at the ways that principles can really guide, the values and principles can really guide our programmatic work. And in um, an earlier 
episode, we talked about the guiding principles of Promising Futures. And one of them is storytelling. And I know that you know this because you've been involved with the Promising Futures program for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but I want to talk today about storytelling, about narrative as a practice or constructing narratives as a practice that can actually be quite um, transformative for our work. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. So I want to start with a basic, what is storytelling? Um, And maybe as an extension, how does this practice of storytelling or how can this practice transform our work to end violence? Well, storytelling is one of the world's oldest sciences, oldest practices across the planet. We are who we are because of the human experience being captured and moved through time and space as story. For me personally, my name in the language of the Nez Perce tribe is the storyteller. So in addition to it being something that I also hold as a personal value, um, it's a cultural practice and a spiritual practice. My love language, you know, all of the Mm. things. Storytelling really comes up and I hope I nourish it in all spaces. uh, Nurture it, I'm sorry, in all spaces that I'm in. Um, Storytelling is a you know, the most direct way to connect with another person. Hmm. The story of our names, the story of our land, um, the story of our people, those are kind of the three biggest ones that allow us to weave, um, you know, community and weave purpose and vision together um, based on our own experiences, the experiences of our ancestors, Um And it's also, you know, um, a way for us to, you know, decolonize our practices in anti-violence a little bit, right? Because storytelling is deeply ancestral for a lot of communities, it removes the academia, sometimes the inaccessible language. It removes, um, you know, systems of inequity, Uh, It is a great equalizer. Nobody's story is more important than another person's story, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. there is no way to, you know, really, without violence, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. relegate or dehumanize somebody else's story. And that's what it, like, and so storytelling is an act of anti-violence. It is an act Mm -hmm. of revolution and transformation. And everybody's a storyteller. That's my favorite part about it. And storytelling doesn't have to be me and you having this conversation today, it could be storytelling through art and through music and through dance, Mm. any form of expression, through prayer, through calligraphy. Like there are so many countless ways that storytelling can take life and take shape. And um, I think that when we uplift, you know, what has been possible and what has been done as storytellers through, you know, time, and allow that uh, value to really sort of build our framework for how we end gender-based violence, what we're doing is also allowing ourselves to be creative in myriad ways in interrupting violence in these systems and in these organizations that mm-hmm. we're a part of. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's um, what's possible, uh, I think, is the question that storytelling helps us to frame and to answer. 
Yeah, and as you were talking, what I appreciated... You were telling a story about storytelling yeah. in a way. And I do that. It's who I am as a Yeah, <laughs> the arc. Yeah, your name is just right. And what, it, what I observed was the pace that you were telling Ooh. and the, in, that implicit in what you were sharing is this encouragement for us to slow down, like just slow down and notice and notice all all the things that um, are lighting the path forward or standing in the way, like to really notice because we move too quickly sometimes. And I, Absolutely. I'm curious, you know, my, the follow, my next question is really about that. Like what needs to be in place for this kind of um, narrative driven work to really be meaningful and effective in our, in our movements, but also in our, lives like how how do I mean I guess I'm first talking about like the movement work but yeah what what needs to be in place for this to work or move actually I want to rephrase that because I think it always already works because Mm -hmm. just the act of storytelling like you said is anti-violence work but um because our audience our listeners are really people in the dv movement who are thinking about how to um transform their their work, how, what, what kinds of pivots they can really lean into. Tell me a little about what kinds of conditions you've seen kind of really generate that, the, the effectiveness of storytelling in the work. Yeah, I, I really glad that you heard the intentionality around slowing down. And um, because that is actually really like pointed work for me. I talk Mm. very quickly. I move very quickly. I have big Capricorn energy, right? Like it's just (laughs) a process and list oriented. Um, So I have to really slow down when I embody storytelling as my practice. And when I say embodying as a practice, um, what gives the story life? It is the pace and the cadence, uh, the use of certain words, making my words and my story as accessible as possible. Um, And it's also about um, making sure that I'm speaking from what I know to be true, right? I'm not speaking or sharing somebody else's story, only only what's coming up for me. And really sort of reiterating that. We are in this day and age deeply conditioned to move fast because capitalism says so, to be productive because capitalism says so. The practices of white supremacy that everything is urgent and emergent and we are reacting to the way that we're moving through the world rather than, um, you know, moving with intention, moving deliberately, moving with thought. And storytelling helps us to interrupt those habits because it needs to be embodied with intention and slowness and um, really thinking about how our words and our language land for folks, you know, Mm -hmm. is also really important um, because we also know that language has been a tool of oppression in recent history. And we part of anti-violence is also shifting language to be as inclusive and as expansive as possible. So that needs to be a part of the conversation. Um, For all of my compas and comrades in this anti-violence work, whether we're in shelters, direct service agencies and coalitions, when we talk about storytelling and embodying the practice of storytelling, 
what does that really look like at an individual and organizational level, right? We can create spaces for storytelling for the other, for the outside, for those mm. who are impacted by our work. But what does it mean for us as individuals to show up and have room to share our stories on a daily basis? Um, the practices of the coalition that I really love, we begin and end every meeting, every check-in, everything mm. with story. And it doesn't have to be elaborate, too. Like, it doesn't have to be this, like large, you know, um, production of storytelling. It really is one to two minutes of what story comes up for you in this moment. What are you bringing into the space? It mm -hmm. could be, you know, on the scale of the life of a banana, I'm feeling, you know, mm -hmm. green. You've just been picked <laughs> up from the grocery store. You know, I'm still underripe, still tight. Maybe by the end of the week, I'll loosen up and be perfectly sweet, right? That was a 15-second story about how I'm feeling this morning. And what does it look like for us to embody and implement those practices in every conversation? That means I know that I'm showing up with you in a human way. We can't do human-centered work if we are not centering the humanity of each other and folks on our staff and um, the survivors and clients that we're each working with. So it is, an, it is a commitment to slowing down and um, uplifting and amplifying the human check-in. What are you feeling in this moment? What are your human needs? Are you hydrated? And then allowing folks mm. and making room for folks to share that story, whatever story is arising in that moment. And um, it takes work. Story feels awkward for some people, mm. right? Some people mm -hmm. don't know how to open themselves up inwardly, if that makes sense, to unlock yeah. some of those stories for themselves. Um, which is why some of our organizations have implemented like 10 step as a practice or breathing and movement practices. Because when we feel at home in our bodies, then the stories just come, right? And again, that is also a product of capitalism, white supremacy, you know, settler colonization, separating our spirit and our bodies from each other, which makes it really, really difficult for those stories to live and come to life. And um, I, I always don't ever want these things to sound so abstract that people can't adopt them, right? Really, what? how are you opening your meetings in the morning? Is it good morning and down to business? Or is it good morning and here's an opening prompt for all of us to share? Who was your superhero as a young person? Um, what fashion trend from when you were 10 do you still carry forward now? You know, like those, it could be really small, brief mm -hmm. things. But what it does is it makes room for human stories and human connection. Mm -hmm. And that that actually, in that small practice, shifts entirely the way that we connect with each other. And when we can connect with each other in that way, it makes it easier and it makes us more approachable to be connected with by all of the people that we're trying to serve. It also, for me, you know, as we're thinking about uh child serving organizations and how to improve the care for children and families within our domestic violence programs. And that's a lot of what we talk about on the pivot. And it makes me think about young voices. Young people seem so like I think about my children, they are storytellers like from birth, like they just want to be narrating right. yes. their their everything. And they come home from camp at summertime and they've got stories coming out of their ears. And they enact them, they retell them over and over. And we it seems like as we think about child serving organizations or improving our care for young people, leaning on their stories could be, I, I don't know, what are your reflections on that? Like, how do we think about storytelling as a way to 
really engage young people in our work, in the process. Oh, that's such a, I love that you said that. I want to uplift that. Children are absolutely the world's best storytellers. Mm -hmm. Even when they don't have words to articulate, babies will still try to communicate their experiences. The cooing, the squealing, their expressions of joy, their facial expressions, all of that is storytelling. And um, I've always really encouraged both my nieces. I have a niece that's turning 15 this week and another niece that's going to be um that's going to be 10 wow the time is just flying by and um I've always because I am the auntie that is the storyteller I've always tried to encourage but you're exactly right they will narrate their lives in real time from I'm eating this thing I'm going to the bathroom like Mm -hmm. and they and it like things that are so mundane but they're just narrating themselves for what whoever will absorb their experience which is why, and I, mm-hmm. I'll actually talk about this experience from the coalition, hmm. um, where children who stop talking to us as adults, we've done something wrong, right? We mm-hmm. have really closed them off or shut them down in a way where they don't feel like they can trust even their most mundane stories with us. We have, and usually that comes from us shutting ourselves down as storytellers, mm-hmm. that they now start to emulate and model that. Um, One of the most beautiful projects the coalition uh, embarked on this year was the Lupin Story Circle project um, from one of our grants where we were able to facilitate story circles um, in a juvenile correctional facility with young girls and incarcerated girls. Most of them were Latinx um, uh, at the intersections of queer and trans identities, some of them enduring, you know, religious trauma and, of course, violent trauma from their homes, experiences of violence. And the goal of facilitating these story circles was a couple of things. One, empowering them to share their story without shame, empowering them to take control and kind of reclaim autonomy over their future, especially Mm -hmm. after having endured abuse or witnessing abuse in their homes. And then also helping us create a strategy guide on how to prevent what happened to them for other Mm -hmm. young people. It's a replicable model. It can be taught to teachers, educators, counselors. And one of the things that I loved is that they had all of the answers. When we are out here spending sometimes thousands and millions about how do we improve this experience, why are we not just asking the children Mm. who have endured the experience? And we did. And we got the most fruitful, amazing stories and art and Mm. interactions. And it, um, they really said the things that we've been saying, like we pay people with doctorates to give us these answers when really they were like, we need a trusted adult. I need to understand what consent means. I need to understand mm. um, what is up, is and isn't appropriate in physical touch and bodily autonomy. I need to understand um, who I can ask hard questions of. I need to understand um, mentorship and when I need help moving into the transition of being a young person into adulthood. And they were giving us all like, and that's really an outline of all the things that we would want to set these young people up for success. They said, this is where, yeah. And they were, they could tell us exactly where that piece was missing from the time that they were incarcerated or the time the abuse started. 
<laughs> to the time that their acting out started, to the time that their incarceration. Like, so they they had the timeline and the self-awareness to understand, like, I did this thing, but I did this thing because this thing happened to me or I saw this thing happen to somebody else. Mm-hmm. They, um, and they did it without shame and they engaged in these mm-hmm. conversations in a very bold way. Like, no, I... This is what I think was happening, and this is what I thought was right. And of course, they're only emulating what they see in real time in their own homes and spaces. Mm-hmm. But we only got there from storytelling. Mm-hmm. Some of the feedback from um, one of the facility counselors was, you know, I've never seen these young people engage and open up in the way that they were able to engage and open up in mm. the facility. It wasn't the like structured talk therapy or group support groups you know it was really like hey we're gonna make cookies but here's what we're doing with the cookies today like how are you feeling show me in the cookie you know Mm. um like they were just every week was a new exercise every week was new engagement and we bought them their own art kits and brought in all the supplies so that they felt like oh we are being invested in, right? They're not getting scraps. They were paid for their time to help and support us as part of their storytelling. And what what was became very apparent was that when we create the environment and the space for stories to be told in an authentic and an honest way that's safe, um, that's confidential if they need it, the stories just come like the ocean, right? Just waves, some of them good, some of them painful, Hmm. but it is possible. And young people just need the door opened, right? That's Mm -hmm. it. Like they just need some safe adult to say, you know what? I don't need anything from you other than just tell me your story. If you don't want to tell me your story, that's fine. Let's just make art today. If you don't want to make art today, cool. Let's just eat snacks today. You know, Mm -hmm. like really giving them the autonomy to lean into, you know, whatever feels good in that moment or whatever doesn't. Mm-hmm. And we we overprocess and overstructure these points yeah. of engagement sometimes. You know, we mm-hmm. here's the goal and here's the objective. Take all of that away from storytelling, right? Storytelling is its has its own life. It's organic. It's fluid. We need to be the river and not the rocks in the river. You know, like uh-huh. what what comes up right now in this river, nobody wants to tell a story. We're not going to tell stories. You know, right. sometimes the river moves slow and cold. Other times it barrels. And we have to really make room for that fluidity for these projects and storytelling practices to be implemented in a good way, you know. Mm. And it takes patience and intentionality and slowness, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. That is so rich. I, I, I love, thank you so much for sharing such a concrete example and all of how um, the, you made the practice real. I am curious, you alluded to this earlier about how we um, apply this work, or I mean, you brought up a couple of examples of how it can be integrated into daily practice at work, but I'm interested in, have you undertaken any bigger efforts at your coalition. I know I know that storytelling is is a big part of it. You're also a podcaster. You you find ways to to gather stories to kind of move things, um, move people's thought. Because what I was hearing in your process with the young people was that you invited them to tell stories and then you kind of raised their consciousness, built their their analysis around 
there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the system, right? That I, I can have a critique of the, the whole setup. Mm-hmm. Similarly, I feel within our organizations, we can do that kind of building. And I'm curious, well, I really just want you to share about a project that you've been working on that involves some storytelling, but is capturing a process that you've been undergoing at the coalition and anything you want to share about it for folks to kind of be able to tap into in the near future. Yeah, no, thank you for that invitation. It is really my heart work um, around capturing stories, especially of the coalition. I've realized in the three years I work for a very unique statewide coalition. There are other Mm -hmm. coalitions across the country that reach to us for insight and technical assistance and capacity building and all of those like official things that come out of our grant narratives, right? But the thing that was coming up for us the most was, you know, how do we replicate what the Idaho Coalition is doing? Because we have adopted transformative work. We have adopted future casting as part of why we do this. The end goal isn't for us to get good at anti-violence. The end goal for the coalition is to nurture what work, nurture what's possible for a world without violence, period. Abundance, mm-hmm. love, graciousness, patience, um, abolition. I will say abolition because I know who the audience is. Um, you know, what is possible in a world without violence and how do we plant those seeds now? That bucks up to the container of the work that we're all doing the federal grants out of OVW and HHS, the federal grant system, the bureaucracy, the auditing, the IRS requirements. How do you do transformative work in a system that is literally designed to dehumanize, marginalize, and oppress? And that is the heavy work, right? So how do we do it? Um, Mm -hmm. It's not easy. I will tell every coalition until I'm blue in the face that this is not easy work. and there are a couple of practical things, but how, how it's essentially manifested, because we were getting so many of the same questions every time we were showing up in a space as an organization, I figured, like, let's um, partner with Promising Futures and figure out how we can capture these stories to share them. How can we archive this journey, not only for ourselves and the coalition, but for other folks who would look to us for guidance? And that's how the, the podcast manifested itself, because, again, I'm a storyteller I just enjoy the deep conversations. I enjoy the juicy conversations um, where folks have space to just be really raw about what this experience feels like. So, um, and then we tied it back to, you know, improving care for families and children because we can't improve our care for families and children if we're not improving and taking care of ourselves, right? Like that's antithetical, that's hypocritical. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things that could be wrong with that and it could perpetuate harm. So um, these conversations, these series of conversations are like run the gamut of, you know, who's had, who has the most history in the organization and what has that journey evolved and looked like? Who is our youngest? You know, who holds the most intersectional identities and what does that feel like? Mm-hmm. Um, what does equity look and feel like? And, you know, kind of getting some feedback on that from my teammates Who's been somebody who's black, brown, or indigenous that's had to carry the weight of our white staff, right? Like, that's really an honest conversation we have to have with ourselves if we're going to end violence at the intersections Mm. of systemic oppression and racism. And um, how do those things show up? How do we navigate the conflict and the tension? Um, And then 
you know, the other conversations then become, you know, what advice would we want to give our peers who do this work across the country? Some of the themes are pretty resounding by this point. Making room in our organizations for folks to show up as their whole human selves. Like, and really looking at that constantly. There is no, like, checklist for that. It is mm. what is what feels good in our workspaces. Um, in our organization, that manifests as a 35-hour work week. Like, and really discouraging anything past that. We are moving into a dynamic leadership model. Um, not even leadership, dynamic stewardship. Um, we're all adults. We don't need supervision. We don't need management, right? And that's transformative. People will hear that and be like, oh my, well, how do you run your organization? Mm. We steward the organization. We all know what the goals and objectives are. We all have the same budgets and the same narratives. So what does it look like for us to empower one another with community accountability practices, with community care practices, with transparency, with um, conflict and tension management, or um, no, that's not what I'm looking for, uh, navigating tension and conflict using story, right? Mm -hmm. Using transformative justice practices. I will say this as somebody who is a learner of transformative justice. TJ does not work in our systems. It does, we can, we can implement some of the practices in mm -hmm. our systems of nonprofits, but it, they, they cannot coexist. Like one yeah. is meant to, um, yeah. So I just want to say that for those of for those listeners who are TJ practitioners, as a student, I know TJ cannot be implemented into our system, but some of the practices of TJ are useful in helping us navigate difficult conversations. And even um, what we're learning in some of these conversations as part of this podcast series is, you know, what language are we using? Is it harm or is it miscommunication? Is it miscommunication or is it hurt feelings? Is it oppression? Is it, you know, so there's mm -hmm. how, what are those things? Like, is it a personality difference or mm -hmm. is it racism? You know, so we really, again, going back to slowness and intention, rather than reacting and moving from a place of reactivity, what does it look like for us to breathe? and think we're on the same side of the river. Uh -huh. We are all trying to do the same work, collective, towards collective thriving, towards abundance, towards wellness. So taking that pause and having those conversations as a team, and that was a theme that came up um, as part of our conversations. And then, you know, some of the more practical things. How many people of color and queer and trans folks and young folks are on our staff? If we are serving young people, do we have young people on the staff mm -hmm. to inform that work? Mm -hmm. If we are serving indigenous people, do we have indigenous people on staff to inform that work? And that really is the shift, being intentional about representing the communities with whom we're trying to serve, always being an open community uh, and open conversation with those folks when, when we're trying to serve their stated needs, not us saying, here's pamphlets and T-shirts and podcasts right. and videos. No, like, what, what, is you need, what does the community need from us right now? And really adjusting the way that we serve that way. Mm. And then um, the other big piece to this, too, and this is, I think, the trap of strategic plans. They're so linear and they're uh -huh. outline-based and they're, they don't make room for pivots and changes and shifts in the way a theory of change allows us to do this. We are in constant conversation about 
our goals and our mission as an organization. Um, we have to lean into the tension of the unknown. A strategic plan makes us feel warm and fuzzy because like, oh, we can check these boxes off and this is our gauge of success. But that's usually only a three, five, sometimes 10 year strategic plan. Right. No, right. the work to end violence is seven generations down the road. What are you doing for that? Like, what's the goal for that? We don't get to be successful in anti-violence work. I say this all the time. <laughs> Nobody should be good at this. We should all be struggling. This should all be a point of tension because if we get good at anti-violence work, that means we're not actually ending it. We're just reacting right. to it. We are putting Band-Aids on a broken foundation of a house, and that's mm. not okay. The work to end violence is generational work. We are putting and pushing these seeds down the river five, six, and seven generations down the road, which means we can't get good at it, which means we, we should constantly be struggling and tripping and messing up. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we harm each other, and then we work and rebuild and repair, and then we keep going. And that terrifies the system. That terrifies organizations because it is abstract and it's... That's the hardest part of the work, is trusting mm -hmm. that the world we're trying to build is not something we're going to see in our lifetimes. Yeah. That, that's the hard part, you know? Yeah, it pushing against the hopelessness mm -hmm. is a big thing. And that's a place for storytelling, too, to really uh, recount the what hopelessness, how it lands, earliest memories of hopelessness, to kind of pull it out of our systems so that we can get reconnected to hope and future focus, future casting, as you put it. Gosh, this has been so rich. Thank you so much, Ty. I am interested to, to have you share where folks can learn more, what, how, when they can look forward to hearing that audio series or any other, you know, if there are two things that you want people to take away from listening to this that they could begin to implement. I've heard you, I heard you say many awesome ideas yeah. and I hope people yeah. were taking notes or re-listen. Um, but if you can just, just put, lift up two things that you think are like really juicy, would, could be good priorities for folks to start this storytelling practice in their daily lives or in their work. Yeah, um, so leading with human connection and story at the beginning of every staff meeting, beginning mm. of every meeting period, whether it's mm -hmm. an internal meeting or an external meeting, human check-ins before anything else. That right. makes room for story. That's, and that's such a small shift and allows us a breath. It interrupts the like back-to-back -back Zoom meetings, yeah. the back-to-back -back calendaring, just the over-the-top <sighs> admin and things that we're doing. Well, stop for human connection every single time you're on a phone or on a phone call or a meeting. Um, and then um, what's the second thing? Um, how are we? And this is just this is a little bit more abstract, but I, I ask this of all of our programs for the Idaho Coalition. How are you incorporating storytelling as part of your intake? You know, um, the intake process is so crucial in the way that we do this work. Are we making room for, um, at this point, these are women in crisis very mm -hmm. often, um, mm -hmm. women and families in crisis. Are we making room for them to share their stories about what's happening to them? Or are we just checking boxes off of our intake list? Um, are we hold, and that's not holding their whole humanity. Um, so how is storytelling incorporated into intake? And um, from those of us who work as non-direct service providers, um, 
how are we incorporating storytelling into our data collection? Because we don't. <laughs> I've seen it. I coach every <laughs> single coalition to this. We do not incorporate storytelling into data collection. We rely very heavily on assessments and surveys, and those are, we are missing the whole picture. We're missing the mural, you know, yeah. and I and I don't love that. So those are some things I'd offer folks to reflect on. Um, from a resource uh, standpoint, the coalition is incorporating this podcast series into our website, which is in evolution and transformation right now. So it'll be September, October by the time that we have that up live. And I'll make sure um, I send you that link so you can attach it to this particular episode as well. Absolutely. And we'll make sure folks have access to us. And then, of course, I'm at the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence. A lot of the things that I've spoken to, I can share with our coalitions and partners across the country so folks can reach out and email me when they when they need me. Thank you so much, Ty, for sharing your time, your wisdom, your smile. Only I get to enjoy that. Um, and maybe you will too if you reach out to Ty. Thanks again. We'll talk to you yeah. soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you think there is work going on in your community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That's thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Email us with information about your effort and we'll be sure to reach out to you. Special thanks to Chance Taylor for his support in editing these shorts. Thanks again for joining us.